Partially Examined Life Precognitions introduce philosophical topics for upcoming episodes to give you a few weeks to do the reading yourself. They also serve as quick, standalone summaries of the work. You can read more about these topics, get the works we cover, and listen to Partially Examined Life conversations at partiallyexaminedlife.com. Hi, everybody. My name is Linda Walsh. I'm an associate professor of English at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the author of a book entitled Scientists as Prophets, a Rhetorical Genealogy. This is the precognition for an episode of The Partially Examined Life, in which the guys and I are going to discuss part of my book, the part where I examine the powerful ethos or public role of the science advisor in the 20th century. I engage a couple of case studies in this section, but we're going to focus on J. Robert Oppenheimer. Because through the lens of Oppenheimer's public adventures and misadventures, we can get a glimpse of a couple of bigger issues, like the relationship between philosophy and rhetoric, and the relationship between science and policy in the late modern era. But in order to get into that conversation productively, I should lay a little bit of groundwork. First, the definition of rhetoric. I think of rhetoric as the interface between philosophy and politics. So it encompasses both the art of making and staying in community with each other, and the theories that develop about that art. My book is about the rhetoric of science, specifically about the ethos or public role of the science advisor and how that's evolved over time. The argument I make in the first part of the book is that the ethos of the science advisor is a mutant or hybrid ethos, and one very powerful strand in its DNA is the ethos of the prophet in the ancient Western tradition. What I learned from studying prophecy in the ancient Mediterranean and in early modern Europe is that prophets don't tell the future. They manufacture certainty. This doesn't mean they bring us certain knowledge of the natural or supernatural world, though this is definitely what we ask them to do. But what prophets actually do for us is they leverage their special access to restricted knowledge to engage us in a dialogue with them and with each other. But this isn't just any dialogue, it's a special dialogue from which emerges political certainty or conviction based on our core values about who we are as a community and what policies we should make. There's been a lot of confusion over the years between these two notions of certain knowledge or epistemological certainty on the one hand and conviction or political certainty on the other hand, but they're not at all the same things. I don't think anyone can manufacture epistemological certainty, but I know that political certainty can indeed be established tentatively, provisionally, just long enough to take action as a community. That's how we make policy, after all, or go to war, or pass laws. There's nothing about the prophetic ethos, as far as I know, that restricts it to religion. It's a role open to anyone who can leverage special access to restricted knowledge to engage his or her community in a dialogue about core values and political conviction. Historically, we've listened to all kinds of prophets, prophets of social justice, of environmental stewardship, and the arena I'm most interested in, prophets from the scientific community. Not every scientist is a prophet, and even the scientists who behave like prophets sometimes don't do it all the time. It's a role, kind of like a soapbox, that we've set up for scientists to step onto sometimes to advise us about what to do when our usual mechanisms of public deliberation have ground to a halt. Scientists who step into this role frequently or make a career of it, I call science advisors. Robert Oppenheimer was one of these people. But before I get into Oppenheimer, I need to fill in one more puzzle piece, and that's the rhetorical theory I used to approach his case and the other case studies in the book. I can't go into my whole method here, but I think I can introduce you to a really useful concept in stasis theory. The fundamentals of stasis theory were first put forth by Hermogenes in Greece in the first century AD and were developed later by Cicero and other rhetoricians. What they noticed was that democratic debate tended to develop in predictable steps or stases. It began at the ground level with forensic questions of fact, definition, and cause and effect. Once questions at those levels were settled, the discussion could move up a level to evaluate the situation against the community's core values, to decide how praiseworthy or blameworthy were these particular effects or those particular actors. And the whole staircase wound up predictably time and time again at the stasis of action or policy, at the question of what we should do about the situation as we now understood it and had evaluated it. So here's the super fast example. 
Say the Roman senators have gathered in the forum to debate a growing fleet of Phoenician ships spotted off the coast. First, they would try to get all the facts. How many ships? When did they show up? What are they doing? How are they reacting to Roman ships? Next, the senators would argue about whether this collection of facts, this event, should be defined as an aggressive action by the Phoenicians or as some kind of harmless trade mission. If the senators defined it as an aggressive action, they would then seek the causes and possible consequences. And then they would try to evaluate how serious a threat it posed. Finally, they would decide how to counter it. That's the Stacey's in a nutshell. We still use them all the time in modern democratic deliberation. Next time you watch a public debate on Bill Mayer or on C-SPAN, try to pick them out. I guarantee you'll find some, if not all, of the staircase of the Stacey's operating as the discussion progresses. But the Stacey's become particularly important when we argue about how to integrate scientific knowledge in policymaking. As science really got going as a state enterprise in the early Enlightenment, what happened was that natural philosophers argued that science was the best basis for establishing facts, definitions, and causes and effects about the world. Therefore, they argued it was also the best basis on which to generate value judgments and policy. They hoped for a truly scientific, objective society and government. This paradigm of science policy integration, what I call the progressive model, has been identified by multiple scholars as key to the Enlightenment ethos. But David Hume, himself a child of the Enlightenment, noticed a logical flaw in the progressive model. The problem he detected is now commonly called the is-ought or facts-values problem, but you may also know it as Hume's guillotine or the naturalistic fallacy. It has a bunch of names. Basically, what Hume pointed out was that logically you cannot derive what ought to be the case about the world from what is the case about the world. To get from is to ought, you must interpolate a value system. For instance, if I say that global warming is accelerating, therefore we need to put limits on industrial emissions, there's an evaluation hiding there in the gap between the facts I gave you and the policy recommendation I gave you. The value is something like, global warming is harmful and we need to stop it. Sometimes the hidden values are pretty invisible, like if I said, there's a meteorite coming so we should evacuate the city. The hidden value that meteorites are bad and should be avoided, who's going to argue that point? It's so universally held that it's practically invisible. But logically speaking, it's still there. And you can't get from facts to policy without it. Hume was really worried about the consequences of invisible values for public argumentation and the Enlightenment project of a truly scientific society, because whose values would we go with? Those of natural philosophers? Those of lay people? Or what about those of tyrants? The horrors of the French Revolution graphically illustrated Hume's worries, and during the late 19th and early 20th century, a series of other grim consequences of applied science, mostly war weapons and industrial pollution, soured Western democracies on the progressive model of science policy integration. Accordingly, philosophers and scientists such as Albert Einstein and Max Weber proposed a kind of cordon sanitaire to be drawn along the lines indicated by Hume's guillotine. Their proposal went like this. Scientists would do pure research in their labs, and then they would pass off this information to politicians in the public sphere who would evaluate it according to the values of their constituencies and make policy from it. But this neat philosophical solution to technocratic abuses of the progressive model was doomed from the start, and not for a logical reason, for a rhetorical reason, namely the Stacey's. Stasis theory predicts that public debates about facts, definitions, and causes and effects nearly always end up in questions of value and policy because that's the cultural meme, that's the cultural practice that a democracy inherits right along with its white buildings and its filibusters. So because everybody knows that's where discussions about science are heading toward value judgments and policy, public arguments that scientists make at the lower stasis of fact, definition, and cause and effect are heard as higher stasis value judgments and policy recommendations, even when scientists try very hard to leave value-laden language out of their arguments. Take, for example, the argument that the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change made in their second assessment report in 1995, that climate change appeared to have accelerated since the Industrial Revolution, and therefore, this acceleration was likely human-caused. That's a statement of cause and effect, straight up, no value added. And yet, can you hear it? 
the ghost of a value judgment that global warming is bad and we should stop it. If you felt that, if you heard that at all, that's the upward pull of the Stacey's at work. It's a rhetorical effect that's invisible if you just concentrate on the logical form of the argumentation. So what does this mean for science advisors? It means the is-ought problem has made them a true devil's bargain. If they stick to just stating the objective results of their research, the upward pull of the Stacey's virtually guarantees that those statements will be heard as value judgments anyway. But if they give up and just embrace the progressive model and make policy recommendations, their political opponents will accuse them of overstepping the bounds of scientific ethos and take disciplinary action against them, in some cases barring them from political life, in some cases smashing their scientific careers with a crowbar of public funding. This is exactly what happened to Robert Oppenheimer. Okay, so a bit of background on Oppenheimer and then we're ready to go. If you want to learn more about him, the masterwork here is American Prometheus by Sherwin and Bird. It's a really riveting biography. I highly recommend it. J. Robert Oppenheimer was born to a well-to-do business family in New York City in 1904. He studied physics at Cambridge and Göttingen. He made some important contributions to particle physics and then made a reputation for himself at Berkeley as a dynamic teacher with an unusual grounding in philosophy, literature, and art in addition to science. Partly for this breadth and his personal charisma, he was recruited to head up the Manhattan Project in 1942. He did more management than science at Los Alamos, but his scientific colleagues agreed the Trinity test could not have come to fruition without him. On the military use of the bomb, Oppenheimer was ambivalent. The triumph of the physics was undeniable, and the success of the project he directed and the defeat of the Nazis' allies were immensely gratifying. At the same time, Oppenheimer expressed horror and regret at the use of the bomb in Japan. But he had become unavoidably associated with the success of the atomic bomb, and so his fame as a science advisor grew following the war. His face was on the cover of every major news weekly in the late 40s and early 50s. He was a member of every governmental committee that had anything to do with atomic energy. He was appointed to head the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, where he signed paychecks for people like Einstein and T.S. Eliot. And President Truman appointed him as the chair of the Atomic Energy Commission's General Advisory Council from 1947 to 1952. This is where Oppenheimer really got into trouble. The pacifist strand in his thinking and public argumentation had grown stronger and stronger since Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And he publicly opposed an accelerated program to build an H-bomb proposed by Edward Teller. President Truman overrode him and the so-called crash program went ahead anyway. But during the process, Oppenheimer made some powerful enemies in the military. When the hawkish Eisenhower administration came to power in 1953, these enemies persuaded the president to investigate Oppenheimer for violating the terms of his security clearance. The ensuing gray board hearings were a kangaroo court. They drummed up some dusty charges of communist loyalties and some really interesting charges of, quote, lack of enthusiasm for the H-bomb program, as if enthusiasm had been a requirement of Oppenheimer's security clearance. But the result was a foregone conclusion. The AEC stripped Oppenheimer of his clearance, effectively ending his participation in policymaking. Oppenheimer's fellow scientists thought at the time, and it's been corroborated by historical since then, that what Oppenheimer was really punished for was his opposition to the Eisenhower administration's Cold War buildup. He spent his remaining years giving invited lectures on topics like the integration of science and society. And in 1963, President Kennedy awarded Oppenheimer the Fermi Medal, which was widely read at that time as an apology for the Grey Board hearings. But it was too late at that point. Oppenheimer's public and scientific careers were irreparably damaged, and his biographers argue that his health was as well. He died in 1967 of lung cancer. Oppenheimer's case presents us with a stark illustration of what still can happen to science advisors when the political paradigm for science policy integration switches from a progressive model to an ISOP model underneath them, so to speak. Oppenheimer was commissioned on the progressive model to make policy recommendations, but when those pronouncements graded against the core values of a new administration, he was accused of overstepping his ethical bounds as a scientist, of stepping across the is-all line, and he was punished accordingly. His ethical dilemma will help frame our discussion about the dynamic between science and politics, and how the relationship between philosophy and rhetoric cuts across it, complicates it, and hopefully illuminates it.
Thanks for listening.